Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her discussion with Dr. Amy Apigian on her approach to attachment as a medical doctor. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you once again here from Chadak with another interview. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Amy Apigian. She is an MD, an MS, um, MPH, so board certified in preventive medicine as a physician. And she also has a master's in biochemistry and a master's in public health. She's an author, speaker, and founder of Trauma Healing Accelerated where she runs uh, camps called Family Challenge Camps. She spent some time in residency in Portland, Oregon in general surgery, but then decided she wanted to choose a really different career path in terms of working with families and children. So she now is a trauma attachment and addiction medicine physician. She has also been a foster parent and is an adoptive parent. So she's gonna be joining us here today, telling us about some of her work that she does with families. And I'm really excited to have her with us today. So stay tuned for Dr. Amy, who will be coming right up. Thank you to everyone who signed up for the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for July 2022. While registration for this round of classes is closed, we will be opening up registration again soon for January 2023 classes. Head to tkcchaddock.org to sign up for the waiting list and get notified when registration goes live. So hi, Dr. Amy. I am excited to continue the conversation that we were having about attachment and the nervous system. Thank you for being here again, Dr. Amy Apidian. Thank you, Karen. Yeah, we left at a really important moment where we were talking about your nervous system is absolutely everything in life. Yes. About attachment fitting into that role of the regulation of the nervous system. We left people hanging. Yes. Well, you know, always want them coming back for more. So, so let's, you know, as you were saying that, that um, really attachment patterning is a way that the nervous system is responding uh, to threats to which if we look at you know you mentioned the Ainsworth Mary Ainsworth and obviously she's best known for the strange situation and so um, a paradigm where the baby is stressed by separation from a caregiver and a series of other things, um, but ultimately separation. And, and so what you're saying then is how the baby's nervous system responds to that is part of the way the baby's classified um, in their attachment um, classification. Is Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, and I'm going to take that one step further because for me, I think as a medical physician, the most fascinating study that she did was when she brought those infants back 
when they were adults and had their children and found that whatever their style had been at 12 months of age, their children had the exact same style. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that really showed me that, wow, like this isn't just your attachment style is influenced by your mom, like your mom's attachment style or your primary caregivers really does become your own that has such a huge influence. There are other influences and that's what I've kind of discovered around the biology of trauma because there are biological, biochemical effects that will change the availability of a baby's system for attachment. And a mom can be a great mom and she can have a secure attachment style and her baby may not have the capacity and the availability for that attachment. And so in those circumstances, I talk about a lot about how certain biologies will actually predispose us to attachment trauma because it makes our system as a baby less available. And it does take both of them in order to walk away with that secure attachment style. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting interesting way in which all of these things come together with the dynamics, the relationship dynamics, the co-regulation, but then also these biological factors that will influence the regulation of the nervous system and how much co-regulation it needs from the mother in order to have a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are some of the things that would predispose the baby um, to not be as likely to have secure attachment other than the caregiving system. Oh my goodness. There's yeah. I'm so glad you're asking this because again, most people just think of attachment style as that relationship piece. And this is the different lens that I have as a medical physician where it's, it's the yes. And (laughs) yes, yes, that is, that is very important. And there's all these other pieces. So for example, Karen, I'm going to share with you that epigenetics is actually playing a bigger role here than genetics. And one of the epigenetic factors that we are seeing a lot more now than before is methylation imbalances. And many people may have heard about methylation, especially maybe if you're in the autism world, you've heard about methylation and it's becoming more widely known, but, but there's this aspect of methylation where you are either an undermethylator or an overmethylator. And methylation is going to determine which of your genes are turned down and which ones are ramped up. So if you think of methylation as you walk into a library with shelves and shelves of books, your methylation is going to decide which book do you actually pull off the shelf and open. If it's, if, if it's not open, then it's not read and it doesn't matter what your genetics are because it's not even read. So epigenetics plays a huge role here. This is a large aspect of the generational trauma, Karen. So generational trauma gets passed down a lot through epigenetics. And so this is something that a baby would be born with. And when a baby, I'll pick on undermethylation, since that is actually becoming more and more prevalent than overmethylation. When an infant has this undermethylation status, it specifically is going to affect the attachment because it lowers the activity of dopamine. Mm-hmm. It also lowers the activity of serotonin, 
But for the attachment process, dopamine and oxytocin are central to that. And so if you have this biochemical imbalance of your methylation, where it's lowering your dopamine activity, your system is less available for attachment. Not only that, but because of your lower serotonin activity, you're going to probably be fussier. You're not going to be as, as happy as a, of a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're going to need more co-regulation. Well, what if it's more co-regulation than what your mom has available to give? What if she only has the amount of co-regulation available to give a baby who doesn't have a methylation imbalance? And for that baby, it's going to be enough. And they're going to come out of their childhood with a secure attachment. And yet this child over here needs more co-regulation because of their biochemistry. That's going to predispose them to attachment trauma. So that's one example. And this And this gets me to a little bit of the neurodevelopment talk, because as we look at neurodevelopment and the stages of development of the brainstem, this undermethylation would be playing a role at the pons level of maturation. So the pons is a region of your brainstem and it controls things like your pain threshold. It controls um, things like your ability to feel hunger And so when, and even feel yourself, like where, where you are in the world, and it's also your sense of stability and grounding and being able to move forward in life because of the different movements that a baby will naturally do for their neurodevelopment at that age. And when a baby has an undermethylation status, that's going to be decreased. And so most of them are coming out of childhood also with this, what I call a gap in the pons level of neurodevelopment. And there are very specific belief systems that they have about themselves. One of which I'll just share with you, Karen. And that would be, they have this felt sense. Again, this is all pre-verbal, right? So it's not like they, they understand this and this has just always been who they are. So they think this is their true personality, which it is not, but they have this felt sense that if they let themselves feel, they would fall apart. And as a baby, it was true. And so babies are actually not born yet with the capacity to regulate their own nervous system. And so as their nervous system would get activated, either by a startle or by a scare or by pain or even by joy and happiness, what happens is that it puts them into that sympathetic state And they have no ability yet to bring that down into a homeostatic state, which is the parasympathetic. And so it's like this runaway train. And if they were to let that train continue to run away, their metabolism literally would go so high and so fast, they would have a heart attack. And so they have to use this dorsal vagal break This is coming from the work of Dr. Stephen Porges. And so they have to use that dorsal vagal response as a break to stop that runaway train. That is what I call the freeze response. And so when they have to use that break, the way that they use it is in a way that disconnects them from their body. And that's the benefit of it is that when they were 
feeling pain. Now they're not feeling the pain as much anymore. So it, it has this effect of disconnecting, of numbing a bit. And that's actually how they survived their early, early childhood, that they continued to have these overwhelming experiences, felt their, their sympathetic nervous system on this runaway train. They, they, it was completely overwhelming and they had to use that dorsal vagal break in order to save themselves and return to a degree of homeostasis. And so literally, if they would have let themselves stay in that overwhelmed state and feel all of that, they, they would have died. And so this belief system becomes so ingrained in them, even as adults, we can see people having that type of pattern where they just can't or won't let themselves actually feel their feelings because they think that, I mean, it feels like they would die and, and they'll, they'll, you'll hear them say that, right? Like, ah, oh, I would, I would fall apart. I don't want to open that box. Why don't you want to open that box? Oh, I just, I'm afraid of what, what would come out. It would be too much. I would fall apart. And those are the people that likely have this pawns level gap. Some of them it's due to the undermethylation status, but certainly there are many other reasons that people can have a pons level gap, even if they were born premature, if they had chronic infections, if they, there are many, many different reasons, but that pons level is from zero to six months of life. And so any experiences of overwhelm for whatever reason would have created that pons level gap. So again, here is a situation where we have an epigenetic change that's resulting in an undermethylation status, for example, lower serotonin, lower dopamine activity that sets them up for overwhelm. And that then even creates this pawns level gap that then creates this belief system that they have about themselves and perpetuates this pattern of numbing, finding ways to not feel in order to get through life. Mm -hmm. And so we can see that a simple thing like an epigenetic imbalance uh, in their methylation status actually predisposes them to all of this trauma in life. Mm. Mm -hmm. I hope that wasn't too much for your audience because I know I went deep into the science there. No, no, I think it's uh, it's very helpful and very interesting. And, you know, we listeners will have heard or thought of the intergenerational transmission of attachment, the intergenerational transmission of trauma, you know, how this happens, why um, Holocaust survivors, or even looking back at the Dutch famine when women were starving during their pregnancy, and later uh, you see uh, high obesity rates in the baby. I mean, all of this, you know, in terms of biology is really so interesting. So I think people would really appreciate what, what you were sharing there. It's helpful to understand. Um, and, you know, you also were mentioning parasympathetic, sympathetic, and freeze. And maybe if we could just step back um, and talk about how you see those things directly related to attachment and attachment stress and, and things like that. We hear about those more when we're hearing about trauma sometimes, but I think it's interesting how you also relate so clearly attachment status or attachment experiences to the nervous system. 
Absolutely. And so uh, for anyone who has an insecure attachment style coming out of their childhood, they're going to have a stronger tendency to be in sympathetic and to go into that freeze response. And if you really want to just be really simplistic about it, the avoidant attachment style definitely has the strongest pull towards the freeze response where they turn inward. They have this collapse that happens and that that is your freeze response. The sympathetic state is more your, your anxiety, right? When you are in the, when you are truly in the sympathetic state, you are running on anxiety. And so that can often be that anxious attachment style. And yet when they reach the point of overwhelm where they've been anxious for too long and their body can no longer sustain that, then they also start to go into that freeze response because there's two triggers for that freeze response. Either something is happening too much, too fast, or they're having to live with something or the, with the lack of something for too long. And so the lack of touch, the lack of nutrients, the lack of co-regulation for a time, the body may be able to sustain that and stay in that stress response and be like, I can, I can get through this. I can hold on, but eventually you can't hold on. Eventually the body literally runs out of resources and it goes into that freeze response. So anytime the body is, feels like, feels like it is running out of resources, it's going to go into that freeze response by using the dorsal vagal break. And so every, every person with an insecure attachment style, like that insecure attachment is dysregulation of the nervous system and a secure attachment is always going to be predominantly parasympathetic. And when it is the appropriate use of sympathetic, they will go there. Like their body is actually able to use the different states of their nervous system and at the right time and in the right way. Whereas someone with an insecure attachment, they're, they're going to be stressed out about things that they really shouldn't be stressed about. Right. But their system can't, can't help that. They, they constantly live in this baseline state of dysregulation. And that reminds me of a lot of uh, families and kids that I've worked with. And when we've tested their biochemical imbalances, cause there's three that I see pretty common in kids with, um, significant behavioral or emotional dysregulation, whether or not they have clear attachment trauma or not. And what I find a lot is also not only that, that methylation imbalance, but something called pyroluria or pyrrole disorder. And that is a, that truly Karen is a genetic disorder and it is worse in times of stress and it pulls zinc and B6 out of the urine. And so the pyrrole refers to inside of the red blood cells, you have this iron ring that carries oxygen. And for those of you who are also biochemistry geeks, right? Like, you know, that our red blood cells are destroyed and, and, and replenished so that we have a fresh supply about every three days or so. And so the pyrrole disorder is such that it has a hard time breaking down that iron ring. And so literally you have this iron ring being passed through your kidneys, filtered through your kidneys. And because of the charge on it, it pulls zinc and B6 with it. And during, uh, during pregnancy, during in utero, the baby is literally 
taking all of mom's nutritional resources, right? I mean, that's what they're supposed to do <laughs> there. And, and, and that's why we hope that she is well-resourced so that it's not leaving her depleted because they're yes. taking all of her zinc. They're taking all of her B6. And so they're born with good levels, but it's going to take several months in order for their own pyrrole disorder to now be causing a functional deficiency in zinc and B6. Those two things are very important for the developing nervous system and make the nervous system very sensitive. So these are your kids who are very sensitive to lights, very sensitive to noises. They can be sensitive to even things like textures of food or clothing. And this is coming online at the same time now that we would be getting into the midbrain level of neurodevelopment, where we literally are organizing our ability to take in sensory information from the world, organize it in such a way so that we can make sense of it. And so these kids have a harder time with sensory things and it doesn't make sense to their brain because it's coming in through a very disorganized way because that midbrain development was impacted and had a gap at that level. And so this would be kind of like your six to 18 months where um, that neurodevelopment would have, would have been impacted. And that's going to certainly impact attachment style as well. And so that's going to be an important one for parents to notice and to maybe do some testing of their kids to see if that might be playing a role in their behaviors, in their emotional dysregulation, in their sensitivity, in their reactivity. These are a lot of the kids who also may have trouble with school because uh, they have a very hard time focusing. Some of them get labeled with ADHD or ADD because everything, everything gets taken in their brain and everything seems important. They're their nerves did not get developed in such a way that it's able to prioritize and be like, no, that sound is not important. Nope. That is not important. This is what's important. And so they literally are bombarded with all of the sensory information. It looks like ADHD. Many kids get mislabeled and what it actually is, is no, we've just got some work around the biochemistry piece, bringing in zinc and B6, and also then redoing some of those movements and, around the neurodevelopmental sequence that they would have had a gap in developing. Well, I think this is a good um, lead in to what we want to end with because you're already starting to talk about, so what do you do about all of this? You know, um, what I know that you shared your background and you're also trained in somatic experiencing and neuroaffective touch and some of the, um, so you're trained in medical models, you're trained in um, clinical therapeutic models. Um, would, would somebody seek you out for a certain kind of testing or is there a way that, you want to educate people about this? Um, I guess the first question is what, what do we do and how do we access that from you? How do you help? <laughs> yeah, no. And, and I'm, what I do is I truly do bridge the worlds of medicine, especially functional medicine and trauma therapy. And this is a result of first working with my own son, then working on my own system and yes. having to figure out what actually works. And could because- you define functional medicine? and for people who may not know what that means. Yeah, so uh, there's uh, the traditional medicine model, which is very much we want to diagnose so that we can give a medication. And functional medicine is more like 
we want to diagnose so that we can then look at what is the root cause and address the root cause. Okay. And so it's, it's a different way of looking at it where we're really looking at what is the root cause. And that's, that's basically, Karen, what I've done with trauma, right? It's like, all right, what is the true root cause of trauma? What is the true root cause of attachment trauma? What is the true root cause of insecure attachment? So that then we can see if we can change that and leverage that even later in life. And for me, that's the really exciting thing because even if you are labeled with an insecure attachment style, that's just our starting place. There is so much that we can do when we understand how the nervous system got to that place in the first place and we reverse engineer that and then also see, well, depending on how long you've been living with that, there are probably are likely other things that we need to bring in to help repair and recover the system in order for it to truly be able to have the lasting effects on that neuroplasticity and not be something that a person struggles with and just kind of compensates for the rest of their life. So yes. people, people can come find um, me and, and the work and my courses over at traumahealingaccelerated.com. And so there they will find, I have a whole, whole layout for people in terms of this is where I want them to start. I want them to start with what I would consider the foundational information and knowledge and tools for their nervous system. And so it's 21 days of me guiding them through somatic work, along with coming into a group and a community to start to have that support and that container and be guided in the process. Because certainly one thing that I discovered was that I was doing good things, but just in the wrong order and actually causing flare-ups of my medical symptoms, my physical health symptoms, because it was activating my nervous system and I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. So I found that there was a very specific sequence in which to do things that actually truly reverse engineers how we got here. And let's just go through that process. So we start with that 21 day journey and then we dive into the biology because now we've kind of run into a wall with our capacity. And so now we bring in the biology. Most times, Karen, I'm actually starting with testing people for three biochemical imbalances that I am seeing so common in people, adults and children who are struggling with stress, trauma, uh, whichever one it is, and being stuck in that, not actually being able to move through and pass that. And so this is, yeah, this is what, what I do. I have a whole team now of health coaches who help me see uh, people around the world and guide them in knowing exactly what lab tests to order, when do we need to do that, what to do, and being able to start them on their journey through a very guided specific sequence in which to do things. Okay, great. And I know you also have a summit coming up that could share something with listeners about. Yeah. So this is actually the second annual biology of trauma summit. And the theme for this year is just that actually going beyond the diagnosis. And this is a great combination of speakers who are experts in medicine, but then also experts over on the mental health and trauma side of things. So we have Dr. Gaber Mate, and he's coming and talking to us about just life, you know, like what it, what it means to be human, definitely going deep into our nervous system and what is the essence of living, 
we have Dr. Stephen Porges. So for those who are interested in more in understanding this polyvagal theory, and one of the things that we actually talked about with um, that I talked in, with him in his interview was around babies who are uh, born premature or for whatever reason have to go to the neonatal ICU, that NICU, and what effect does that have on their nervous system for life? And he's studied that. And so we go into that in detail. We have Dr. Gordon Newfeld, who's a parenting uh, expert and talking about how parents need to be the answer for their children. Have Dr. Peter Levine with somatic experiencing. I have um, one of one of what I consider the mo- one of the most successful female health entrepreneurs out there, and sh- for the first time ever, Karen, she shares her adoption story and how that impacted her and what things she had to move through and do in order to be able to be that successful as a female entrepreneur. So lots of good stuff, Biology of Trauma Summit 2.0. And this is airing for free, have over 40 speakers, but also have live experiential workshops during that summit week. And so this is just a huge, valuable resource for people that's free across. And that's uh, August 8 to 14. Okay, great. And we will put um, a link about that in the show notes, but I'm also assuming if they go to your website, they might be able to find something about it. So if you want to share um, your website before we end today. Yeah, they can register for the summit directly from my website, which again is traumahealingaccelerated.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for the wonderful work that you're doing and being able to be willing to give some time to the Attachment Theory and Action Podcast. It's been wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 